Well, last Sunday, in, in our continuing study through the book of Luke, we were introduced to the ministry of, 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 a, of an odd duck. You know, it was the ministry of John the Baptist. And John is, is the forerunner that God sent to prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah. He was the one that was prophesied uh, by Isaiah in the Old Testament over 700 years before he arrived. He was prophesied as to be the, one, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And we know that John the Baptist was actually raised in the wilderness, and he was literally out there preaching a, a baptism of repentance, calling people to be prepared for the Lord. And John was unique, right? We discovered that last week. John, he, he didn't dress like anyone else. He didn't eat like everyone else. His message and his ministry were different as well. You know, when it came to his clothing, you remember he wore camel's hair? Uh, camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. When, when it came to time to eat lunch, he ate, he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. Um, anybody here had grasshoppers? You, who's here? Raise your hand if you had grasshoppers. That's a lot, right? Um, we, we, down in Mexico every year, it's one of the things that they sell in the streets. And I've had them. Actually, they're not bad. They're not bad. I don't know that I would make my diet grasshoppers, but if you put enough salt on anything, they're, they're, they're pretty, they're okay. I don't know that John ate grasshoppers the way that we do in Mexico. I'm imagining he just grabbed them off the, the ground. I don't know. But anyway, John's diet was different, okay? He was, he was, he was different. And his message was, was all about repentance, you know, calling people to turn away from their sins and to turn to God. And we saw last week that John, he wasn't like a seeker-sensitive preacher either, right? When he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the crowd, what did he do? He looked at them and he said, you bunch of snakes, right? Now, last week, I, by the way, I actually literally, after the service last week, I sent a text to my friend Doug here to apologize. I literally looked at him as an example of what that might have looked like. I stared him down and said, you slimy snake. So... Um, I only did, he's, honestly, Doug's a great guy. Do you guys know that, right? How many people know Doug? Doug's a great guy, so he's not a snake, so. But anyway, John's message, it wasn't, it wasn't like really like warm and fuzzy, was it? No, he, he was calling people to repentance, and, and, and I don't think people then were any different than people now. We don't like to be called out for our sin, do we? Even those who are Christians sometimes were like, don't call me out for my weaknesses. We don't want people pointing that stuff out, do we? Um, and John didn't care. He just did it. And what's really interesting about John is that, like, if you were the PR rep for God and said, we need to hire somebody to come and prepare the way for, your peop- for, your, for the coming of the Messiah, it, like, you wouldn't choose John. You just wouldn't. There was nothing about him uh, that screamed, this is the guy that we're going to hire to be the forerunner for Jesus. But that's exactly who God chose. Because as we said last week, John's heart was 100% devoted to the Lord. And he didn't care what people thought. He cared what God thought. That was, that was John. And, and, and what's really interesting is that people responded, didn't they? You would think, like, that's never going to work. People are not going to go out and look at a guy dressed in camel hair who's got crickets in his beard. Like, people aren't going to do this, right? Not true. Not true. You know, people will listen to someone who, you know, they may not believe what he's saying, but he believes it, right? And they will, they will go out to listen to that. 
And many people listened and many people responded to John's message. They turned away from their sins and they turned to God. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we're told that people from Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized in, uh, by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People were coming from 10, 20, 30 plus miles in order to listen to John preach and many of them repented of their sins and they were baptized by John. Well, this morning, we're gonna continue reading in chapter three. We're gonna pick up our, our study in verse 21. So Luke chapter three, beginning in verse 21. Luke writes, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Luke, Luke tells us that not only were a lot of people from Jerusalem and Judea and all the river area around the river Jordan were coming out to hear John, but Jesus himself came out to hear John and to be baptized by John. One day as John is out here, he's preaching this message, right? And people are, the crowds are there and they're listening to John preach and he's baptizing them in the water. All of a sudden, Jesus steps into the water to be baptized. Now, you know, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling the story of the life of Christ. And in each gospel taken from a different lens, different writer, writing to a different people. And sometimes they include different pieces that one or the others may not include. And both Matthew and Mark include some details about this baptism that Luke does not put in his gospel. We're told that Jesus traveled, but Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus traveled from Nazareth in Galilee, the place where he grew up, all the way down to the region of the Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea. So Jesus traveled some 70, 70 to 80 miles, depending on where he started and where exactly he landed down by the Jordan. And most likely by foot, Jesus walks down in order to be baptized by John. That's why he's there. Now, one of the things that many people, uh, including myself, find surprising when they visit Israel is the size of the Jordan River. Um, we have a picture in our minds, right? We got this picture of what the Jordan River might look like, but on the screen there, you can see a couple pictures. The one on the top is taken just north of the Sea of Galilee on the map there. You can see that near the top of the map. This is uh, sort of the, the, the Jordan River before it enters into the Sea of Galilee. So it's, I mean, it kind of looks like a river, right? It's not huge, but it's, it's decent size. By the time it leaves the Sea of Galilee and then travels down to the Dead Sea where it, where it ends, that picture on the bottom is what the Jordan River looks like today uh, near Jericho. Isn't that awesome? Who wants to go swimming? Isn't that great? Not exactly what we have in mind, right, when we think about the River Jordan. Now, probably at the time of Christ, it would have been more water there than what we see here uh, because today, a lot of the Jordan River is actually diverted for agricultural purposes. It's diverted for agricultural purposes, but then it's, uh, there's, there's extra flow coming back in, uh, which is mostly waste um, coming back into the Jordan as it heads to the Dead Sea. So not, not exactly a place that you want to go for, for a dip. 
But this is the area where John was serving, down near, just north of the Dead, uh, just north of the Dead Sea. So Jesus shows up. He shows up and he steps into the water to be baptized by John. Now, Luke doesn't really focus on the baptism itself. He just states it as a matter of, of fact, and then he moves on. Luke is far more interested in what took place after the baptism. But before we talk about what took place afterwards, let's just talk briefly about the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the sinless son of God, stepped into the waters to be baptized by John. Let that sink in for a moment, right? Because what do we know about John's baptism? John was preaching a baptism of, say it, repentance. He was calling people to turn away from their sins. And as a sign that they had turned away from their sins, he said, step into these waters and be baptized, showing that you have turned away from your sins and you've turned to God. If there was ever a person in all of human history that did not need to step into that water, who is it? It's Jesus, right? Jesus had nothing to repent of. He had no need to repent because he was perfect. He was sinless. It made no sense, right? It didn't make sense to John. In fact, Matthew tells us that when Jesus stepped into the water to be baptized, John was hesitant to go along with it, right? He's like, hold on a second, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming and asking me to baptize you? This doesn't make sense. John was confused by Jesus' request. But Jesus insisted. He said, no, this has to happen, John. It needs to happen. So John concedes, and he goes along with it, and he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. So it raises the question, right? Why, if he didn't need to repent, why was Jesus baptized? And this is a question that that theologians have, have wrestled with for centuries. Let me go ahead and give you what I believe to be the, the, the five, five best reasons that have been put forth to answer the question uh, why Jesus was baptized. So first of all, Jesus' baptism was about affirmation. Jesus' baptism affirmed the ministry of John the Baptist. By stepping into the water and, and having John baptize him, Jesus was publicly endorsing John's ministry. He was saying to everybody present, this is important. What John is calling people to do matters. This needs to happen. So it was a sign of affirmation. Number two, it was about confirmation. Jesus' baptism and specifically what took place afterwards confirmed the true identity of Jesus as the son of God. It certainly confirmed it for John the Baptist. L listen to what John says in, in the Gospel of John, chapter one. We read these words. This is John the Baptist speaking. He who sent me to baptize with water, who, who sent John to baptize with water? God, right? We, we read last week that the word of God came to John and sent him to do this ministry. So he says this, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So when John, 
gets this ministry. God says, John, you're going to go do this ministry. He says, and by the way, when you see this person come and step into the water and the spirit descends on him, that's my son. That's the one. And so when it happens, John's like, wow, this is the one. At this point, when Jesus is baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and comes to rest on him, John knows that he knows that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. So it was about affirmation. It was about confirmation. Third, it's about identification. Through Jesus' baptism, Jesus identified with humanity. He identified himself with those that he had come to save. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is, is the Son of God, fully God, and fully man. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus identified with humanity. He, he, was, he was a savior who said, I've been there. And, and I'm not calling you to do anything that I won't do. The fourth reason for Jesus' baptism is illustration. Jesus' baptism prefigured his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the grave. Now, earlier today, when Pastor Jeff was leading the communion time, he talked about how the Passover prefigured the sacrifice that Jesus would make as the Lamb of God, right? In the same way, in the same way, baptism prefigures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just like the baptism that we partake in as Christians symbolizes our own death, burial, and resurrection, that we have been raised to newness of life as Christians, that we recognize that I've died to the old Chris, my sins have been washed away, and as I come up out of the water, symbolically, we're saying I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism, is, it, it illustrates the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then number five, it was a demonstration Jesus' baptism demonstrated the type of obedience that Jesus expects from his followers. Like any good teacher, he models the behavior that he expects from his students. Jesus wasn't, he wasn't one of those teachers who says, you know, do as I, do as I say, but not as I do. You know, that, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus was the type of teacher who said what? He said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. By the way, if you are a believer, if you're saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe he died for my sins, I believe he was buried, I believe he was resurrected, and I have put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, Jesus commands his followers to be baptized. You know, sometimes I think we think of baptism as this like, hmm, if you're an elite Christian, you might take the next step and get baptized. But that's not it at all, is it? No, baptism is the next step of obedience that every believer is commanded to take. 
to, to let the world know that I have died to my sins and Jesus has forgiven my sins are gone and I am raised to new life, a life in Christ. Baptism is very, very important. So it was a demonstration as well. So those are some of the reasons why Jesus was baptized by John. All I can tell you for sure, all I can tell you for sure about Jesus' baptism is that it had absolutely nothing to do with any need of his to repent. Jesus had no need to repent because he was a sinless son of God. So now that we've talked about that, let's talk about what took place on that day. After Jesus comes up out of the water, let's talk about what took place. Luke says in verse 21 that when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying. He was praying. Now, this is a detail. Matthew and Mark included details about Jesus traveling from Nazareth down to the, to the River Jordan area. Luke is the only one who includes this detail, that Jesus was praying when this happened. It's a detail that the others don't, don't include. One of the things that we're going to see about Luke in, in this entire gospel is the emphasis that, that he places on the importance that Jesus um, had towards prayer. Jesus made prayer a priority in his life. You know, we see him praying publicly. We, we see him praying privately. And especially, especially before significant events and decisions in his life, we see Jesus making time to get alone and to communicate with the Father as he's on the verge of making big decisions. Jesus is about to begin his public ministry here, right? So he's being baptized, and then he is coming up out of the water, praying and praising God. In chapter 6, when we get, we're going to get there eventually, but Luke tells us that on the night before he chose the 12 apostles, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. Okay, so it's nighttime. The next day, he's going to pick his 12 apostles. It's nighttime. He goes out to the mountain to pray, and all night, he continued in prayer to God. Think about that. When was the last time that you prayed all night long? Be honest. Like, how long can you lay? lay you lay, Part of the problem is like you lay in your bed, right? I'm, I'm going to lay down on my bed, and I'm going to pray. That prayer lasts, at least in my life, what, about 10 seconds, Jen? I don't know. I, when, I, when I hit the pillow, I'm gone, right? But Jesus, this is a big day. It's a big decision. He's going to call 12 guys to be his apostles, and he spent all night communicating with his father in preparation for that. And this begs the question, if Jesus was so devoted to prayer, so devoted to communicating with his Father, the perfect sinless Son of God was so devoted to making time to pray, shouldn't prayer be a high priority in our lives as well? I mean, clearly we need God, don't we? We need And I got to be honest, I, I really believe that this is an area where many of us could really stand to grow, myself included myself included, that, that why, why isn't prayer a bigger priority for us? I mean, is it that we don't think we need him? Hopefully not. I think sometimes it's just we, just we don't know how to pray, right? And so we need to make 
that a priority to learn and to grow in our prayer life and our communication with God. So picture the scene. Jesus is baptized in the water by John. So uh, both Matthew and Mark tell us that it immediately, after he comes up out of the water, immediately he, he comes up out of the water. He's drenched. He's dripping. You guys have been to baptisms, right? You know what it looks like. We're all soaked and our clothes are clinging to us. And if you have longer hair, it kind of pulls to the front. You got to push it back. And you're soaked, right? Because you just went under water. So Jesus is coming up out of the water. And, and he's, he's, maybe he's raising his hands. I'm not sure. But he's looking to heaven and he's praying. And he's praising God. He's worshiping his father, communicating with his father on this momentous occasion. And as he's doing this, the gospel of Mark says that, that he saw the, the heavens being torn open, torn open. Luke says, Luke says that three things happened. The heavens were opened, the spirit descended, and the voice of God spoke from heaven. Can you even imagine that moment? I mean, <laughs> I've been to a lot of baptisms, and there are, I love baptisms. Like one of my favorite things in the church that we do is gathering for baptisms. I love them. That has never happened at any of the baptisms that I've been a part of, right? Yeah. The heavens were opened, the Spirit descended, and a voice of God spoke from heaven. I can't even imagine what that must have looked like. It reminds me of the scene in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be martyred for his faith, right? He's, he's just about, they're going to stone him. They're going to kill him for his faith. And with the angry mob looking on and ready to stone him, we're told that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Just moments before he would breathe his last on earth, the heavens were opened and, and Stephen sees into the heavens. Remarkable, right? So maybe it was something similar to that here. As Jesus stood praying after his baptism, the skies were peeled back and the, the invisible became visible for a moment. The glory of God, you know, emanating from the skies. I can't even imagine I can't imagine what, what that would have looked like. And as the heavens are opened, Luke says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And, and, and this is the moment we've already talked about. This is the moment where John is like, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is exactly what God told me was going to happen, and here it is. It's happening. Now, in the same way that I, honestly, I really can't picture what it looks like for the heavens to be torn open. I, I can't picture that fully in my mind. I do have a picture kind of in my mind. It's like, it, it involves a lot of light, okay? It's like in my mind, I'm just like the, the glory of God just radiating from the sky. But I really don't know what that looks like for the heavens to be peeled back in that moment. In the same way, I gotta say, I don't know what it really looks like for the Holy Spirit to descend in bodily form and come to rest on Jesus. And it says, like a dove. I do know, I do know that in, in most of the artistic you know, paintings and drawings I've, I've seen, Jesus is standing next to John 
And there's a, literally, there's a dove sitting on his shoulder, you know, like, like I don't know, like a, like a pirate has a parrot sitting on his shoulder. Jesus had a, a, had a dove sitting on his shoulder. But, but is that what actually happened? Is that really what, is that what Luke says? Does Luke say that the Holy Spirit was a dove in that moment, that he was literally in the body of a dove? It doesn't actually. The text doesn't say that. The text says that, that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So did he look like a dove or did he descend like a dove? It was dove-like in some way, but I don't know. I, I don't think we really know. But here's what we do know. What we do know is the Holy Spirit was visible in this moment. In some way, the Holy Spirit was visible. Whatever form he came in, John and those who were there saw the Holy Spirit in bodily form descending and remaining on Jesus. And you know, I don't believe, I don't believe the point of this story is for us to conclude that the Holy Spirit is a dove. I don't. I don't think that that's the point. I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point is that the Holy Spirit is descending upon Jesus and anointing him and empowering him for service. I think God from heaven is saying, this is my son. That's the point. That's why you've never seen it happen on anybody else, right? I can say with a great deal of confidence that what took place on the day that Jesus was baptized had never happened before and it's never happened since, right? Jesus is the unique son of God and that's what God is pointing out here. God the Father is screaming out loud for everybody present, this is my son. In Isaiah chapter 61, Old Testament, again, written over 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, Words that, that Jesus is going to claim were written about him. We're going to look at that in a, in a few weeks. Isaiah, Isaiah wrote these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then he goes on to describe some of the things that, that he has been anointed to do. Things like bringing good news to the poor. Things like binding up the brokenhearted. We're going to take, again, we're going to take a closer look at that passage in a few weeks when Jesus is going to claim that that was written about him. Suffice it to say, Jesus has been anointed in order to bring peace between God and mankind. That's what Jesus is anointed and empowered to do. He is here to do what? To bring peace between sinful man and a holy God. That's what he is here for. And so... In many ways, this description of the, of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and it's a really fitting picture, isn't it? Because the dove symbolized gentleness and peace. And, and Jesus, in his first coming, he came to make peace. Now, we've read the rest of the New Testament, right? And so we know that the first time he came like a lamb. He came in peace like a dove. When he comes again, the Bible says he's going to come like a lion, right? He's going to come to judge. That's, that's the second coming when Jesus returns. So Luke tells us that the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and third, a voice 
came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Chapter one, the, the angel Gabriel told Mary that, that your son will be called the son of the most high, that he will be called holy, the son of God. A couple of weeks ago, we read the story about Jesus when he was 12 years old, he was at the temple and his mom and dad are, are all worried because they, they've lost him and they go back, they find him and they're freaking out and they're upset with him because like, where'd you go? What, why'd you do this? And he says, you know, didn't you know that I had to be at my father's house? So Gabriel said that Jesus was the son of God. Jesus said that I am the son of God. And now here, here, a voice from heaven, God the Father is now saying, this is my son. This is my son. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, I can't prove this. I can't prove this. But I'm pretty sure at this point, this is the point, John hears, he sees the dove, he's like, oh, this is definitely the son of God. And then a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son. John, at that point, I'm, I'm pretty sure he went out and he bought one of those bumper stickers to put on the back of his camel that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? You guys seen those bumper stickers? Yeah, John, I think John had the first one. He stand there and God speaks from heaven. Now, listen, I've never had that experience. I've never had that experience. But I'm telling you, you don't forget something like this, right? This is an unbelievable moment, what's taking place here on the, on the River Jordan. As Jesus comes out of the water, he's praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, and a voice of God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. I love him. What an incredible moment. One more thing before we continue, because this is really important, because as you, as you study the Bible and you, and you get familiar with theology and you learn things like you hear words like the Trinity, the idea that we, we serve one God in three persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, is a, it's a difficult thing sometimes to understand, okay? One of the things that's so amazing about this passage is it helps to build our theology about what the Trinity is. Because what we see in this passage is that all three members of the Trinity are there at the exact same moment. So you have God the Son there, you have God the Holy Spirit there, you have God the Father speaking from heaven. Because there's a, there's a heretical teaching that circulates around from time to time that says that, well, no, technically it's one God and he can appear in three different forms, but only one at a time. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have one God in three persons. Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all three are present in this moment, okay? That's important. You should, you, should, uh, you should know that. Now, up to this point, up to this point in our series, we, we've been watching, right? John, uh, Luke has been going back and forth. John the Baptist, Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus. And here we are. We're, we're here with John the Baptist, and those two stories are merging together as one, right? They're together there in the Jordan. After this verse, after this verse, as we move forward for the rest of Luke's gospel, the, the focus of attention is going to shift squarely on Jesus. We're going to be following the life of Jesus from here forward. I mean, we'll talk about John the Baptist more later, but, but he's not the focus. At this point, Jesus is the absolute focus of the story. Now, at this point, before, before we continue, we're, 
John the Baptist is, is next, the next story is gonna be about Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted. That's the next story. And that's actually what we're gonna look at next week. But before we get to the next story, Luke is gonna pause the narratives for a moment. He's gonna pause the narratives and he's gonna, he's gonna focus on the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth. He's gonna focus on the, and I know, listen, I know that most of you are here today because you love genealogies. I know that when you guys are reading your Bibles, especially the Old Testament, when you're reading the Old Testament, I know this is the point where you really slow down and you take it in, don't you? You're like, oh, sweet, another genealogy. I love genealogies, right? No, what, what do we, most of us do? We get to a genealogy and we're like, sweet, my Bible reading is going to be a lot faster today, right? <laughs> the end, right? And we just jump forward to the end. We're like, oh, chapter's over, done with that, I'll... See you again tomorrow, Lord, right? But, but what, here's the thing. The genealogies are part of what? What do we call this? It's the Bible. It's also called the Word of God, God's Word. It's equally inspired, isn't it? It's part of the inspired Word of God. These genealogies matter. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go name by name, and I'm going to tell you everything that I can possibly think of about every single name in this list. Um, no, I... I am definitely not going to do that, <laughs> okay? We're going we're gonna to go through this pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing. As Luke is about to write about the public ministry of Jesus, what he wants his reader to know, he wants his reader to know that Jesus meets the genealogical requirements to be the Messiah. You, lo- listen, lots of people can show up and say, I'm the Messiah. It happened. A lot of people in Israel's history showed up and said, hello, I'm the Messiah. They're like, really? Well, let me see your genealogical records. Well, you know, I don't really have those. Well, where were you born? Well, I was born in Jerusalem. No, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, right? There were things written in the Old Testament about the Messiah, right? And so Luke is saying, what you need to understand is that Jesus meets the requirements to be the Messiah. So there's, there's a couple names that are really important in this list, and those are Abraham, because he had to be a son of Abraham, a Jew, in order to be the Messiah. Because God promised that he was going to bring, uh, he was going to bring restoration to the whole world. All, all families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. So it's through his offspring. The other name that's important in this list is, is King David. The Old Testament tells us that David, that the Messiah was going to come from the, the tribe of Judah through David. And so the, the Messiah had to come from the line of David. So let's just go ahead. We're going we're gonna to go through these pretty quickly, but let's take a look at the genealogy of Jesus. In verse 23, Luke says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, now look at this, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, the first thing that Luke points out here is that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Luke doesn't say he was 30. I, I think that's important to point out because some people are like, yep, he was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Luke says he was about 30. And the truth is, if we, if we do the math, if we look at the death of King Herod, which we've already talked about, and we look, and we look at the math and we say, well, we know that Tiberius Caesar began reigning you know, around 14 uh, AD, and when we do the math, we can actually figure out Jesus is probably in his early 30s at this point. So 
Luke's not wrong. He was about 30 years old. But the age of 30 was an important age for the Jewish people because it represented the full maturity of a man. In Numbers chapter 4, we're told that, that the priests were allowed to start serving at the tabernacle once they turned 30 years old. And so as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he's a fully mature man. He's about 30 years old. Luke says that he was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, why do you suppose that Luke adds in the as was supposed? Tell me real quick, why? Because of the virgin birth, right? You know, like, people are like, well, I, can't, I can't buy the virgin birth. You need to buy the virgin birth. It literally happened. And it's actually very important that it, that it happened um, because Jesus did not inherit the sin nature that's passed down through his father. He did not receive that sin nature. Jesus was sinless. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. We already know from the Christmas story that Jesus was virgin born through Mary. So Joseph is not his biological father, is he? He is the adoptive father of Jesus. So Luke says he was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, for those of you who are more familiar with the Gospels, you know that there are two genealogies uh, for Jesus in, in the Bible. There's the one that we're reading here in Luke, but there's another one. Where is it? Where is it? Matthew. That's right. And that's great, right? We have two genealogies for Jesus. But what can be a little confusing, even surprising for sure, but, but confusing for most, is that these two genealogies are not identical. Have you ever noticed that? How many people notice that? Yeah, you've been doing it. You're like, oh, look, Matthew talks about a genealogy. Luke, what? Why aren't they the same? Well, they are pretty much the same. Once you get back to David beyond, they're pretty much the same. But from David down to Joseph... They look very, very different. Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel was written primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. Matthew, he is focused on showing that Jesus is a legal descendant of King David, that he is an offspring of Abraham. Matthew wants his Jewish audience to know that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's his focus. That's why he is He's writing. He wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, and he wants them to know that he comes through David. So Matthew's genealogy follows the legal line of Jesus from Abraham all the way down to Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph. Because Jesus was the oldest son of Joseph, he's next in line. He inherits everything that belongs to Joseph. And Joseph has a legal line back to Abraham through David. So that's important for Matthew. That's what he's trying to show. Luke, on the other hand, is writing with a primarily Gentile audience in mind. And we've talked about this before. What's a Gentile? Anybody who's not a Jew. Okay? So Luke is primarily writing to those who are not Jews. And so Luke doesn't begin his genealogy with Abraham... No, Luke takes his genealogy all the way back through King David, through Abraham, all the way back 
to a guy named Adam, the very first human being, the first creature that was created by God, first human creature created by God. Luke takes us all the way back to the beginning when sin entered the world and, and death entered as a consequence for sin to all people. That's where Luke takes us back. God, Luke takes us all the way back to the beginning when God spoke about a, a promise that he would bring salvation through the offspring. This is in Luke chapter two. He was gonna bring salvation, uh, no, ch chapter three. He was gonna bring salvation to, the, uh, to all people through the offspring of the woman. That's what he said. So this is why many commentators believe that while Matthew is following, Matthew is following the legal line of, of Jesus through his adoptive father, Joseph, Luke is following the biological line of Jesus through his mother, Mary. You enjoying this so far? You guys like talking about genealogies? Isn't this fun? We haven't even got to the names yet. Wait till we get there. It's amazing. But that explains, if that's the case, that explains why the genealogies are different. Go figure. Joseph and Mary have a different genealogical line, right? But what's interesting is they both go all the way back to King David. Matthew's following the legal line, and Luke is following the biological line. But both legally and biologically, Jesus was a descendant of King David with a rightful claim to the throne. And I'm not going to, listen, I'm just going to throw this out for you to study on your own. Okay, we're not going to dig into it because we just don't have the time to do it. But there's a really important name that you should look into if you're inter interested in this. Okay, it comes up in the book of Jeremiah, a guy named Jeconiah. It's really important that you look into this because Jeconiah was cursed by God. He said, you, you can't, you, you, will, you will have no offspring and you're not going to have anyone rule on the throne in the line of Jeconiah. That's it. But if you read Matthew's gospel, you're going to see Jeconiah's name in there. So on the legal side of Jesus' genealogy, it goes through a guy named Jeconiah and you say, well, that can't be. But guess what? Jesus is not a biological descendant of Jeconiah, is he? He's a biological descendant of Mary. And on Mary's side, Jeconiah is not in the picture. That's why these genealogies are so important. We get around the curse that God pronounced on Jeconiah by going through the genealogy of Mary. Does that make sense? Pretty cool stuff. Look into it. Uh, uh, Jeremiah talks about that curse on Jeconiah. So if that's the case, verse 23, Luke says that Jesus is the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So who is Heli? If this is Mary's line, then Heli is Mary's dad, Mary's dad. What you'd have to assume then is that maybe Mary didn't have any brothers, and so therefore the line was passed from Heli to his son-in-law, Joseph, his son, because Mary didn't have any brothers. That's, that's at least one way. Here's what you need to know. Maybe commentators are right. Maybe they aren't. Maybe there's another explanation. In fact, commentators have other suggestions about how this could be, why these two lines are different. What you need to know is that there are ways that can explain why Matthew and Luke are different. Just because we don't know with 100% certainty why they're different doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. Just like last week, just because we didn't have proof that Pilate existed for 1,900 years didn't mean that Pilate didn't exist, did it? It just took us a while to figure it out. 
we finally figured out, like, yes, he did ex- exist. We found the Pilate inscription. So anyway, that's, that's enough about, about that. So Heli would have been Jesus' grandfather, right? So Luke, verse, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 24 continues. This is good. By the way, secret to reading the genealogies, I'll just tell you this real quick, real quick. You know, they're like really hard names. Didn't actually, Pastor Henry, a couple weeks ago, pastor a microphone around, right? And, and you guys read the scriptures instead of him just sitting up here reading them for him? I think we, we should do that today, right? <laughs> just get that mic out right now. We'll pass it around and we can, you, you can read some names. Now, here, here's, I, I heard a pastor once say this. The trick to reading uh, genealogies and these hard names of the Bible is just to read them with confidence. Just read them with confidence because what's going to happen is you say it with such confidence that even when the people hear it and they're like, I don't think that's how it's pronounced, but he sure seems sure. (laughs) So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, right? That actually happened today, actually. I was saying something. I was pronouncing something wrong, and Pastor Henry says, are you sure that's how you pronounce it? And I said, I'm really not sure. He's like, well, I wasn't sure because you seem so sure. (laughs) So it was actually the word genealogy. I was saying genealogy, and he's like, I think it's genealogy. I'm like... Yeah, you're right. So YouTube, I looked it up. It's true. It's genealogy, not genealogy. Anyway, wow. I told you, I'm like so ADD, right? I'm like, I'm just, okay. So here we go. Luke chapter 3, verse 24. Heli was the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath. Oh, that wasn't confident enough. The son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. We're getting there. We're not there yet, we're, we're, we're getting through this list. This is King David. So there, there he is, there's King David. And as you can see in, in Luke's genealogical record, the line goes back to David through his son, Nathan. Matthew's genealogical record goes back to David through his son, Solomon. So that's Again, you can see this. One is legal line, one a biological record. Let's continue. Verse 32. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. There he is, Abraham. Now, In Matthew's genealogy, this is where it ends. He stops at Abraham because Father Abraham, right? So he wants to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus is the king of the Jews and and Abraham's the father of the Jewish people. But Luke doesn't stop here. Luke keeps going. Abraham was the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen? Isn't that awesome? 
Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. It's pretty amazing. And um, it's also a great list of baby names if you're expecting. So <laughs> there, there are very few names in that list that we're still using today. So anyway, maybe you can bring one back. Luke takes us all the way back to the first human being. And Adam here is referred to as the son of God, son of God. Not, not in the same way that, that Jesus is the son of God, mind you, because Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the eternal son of God, but, but, but Adam was a created being. God created Adam from the dust of the ground, and we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You know, that's the thing amazing about God, right? God created, the world was created, we say ex nihilo. God created something out of nothing. By the way, I mean, that's, that's a, like, when you're talking to people who are like, I don't really know if there is a God. See, here's the deal. Something has to have always existed, right? Something. And, and the Christian, the Judeo-Christian would say that something is God. God is that thing which has always existed. That's the prime reality. It, that's the question. Or that's the answer from the Christian about what is the prime reality. It is God. Now, I want you to think about something really cool as we get ready to close. In the book of Colossians, we're told that Jesus, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That's what Colossians tells us. That means that Jesus is the one who created Adam from the dust of the ground. Jesus is not only a son of Adam as a human, he is the God who created Adam to begin with. Jesus is fully human as a son of Adam, but he is also fully God as the one who created Adam in the first place. That's what the Bible teaches. And what we're gonna see as we continue our study for the rest of the book of Luke, we're gonna see that Jesus is going to perfectly accomplish what Adam failed to do right? Jesus is going to live his life in total obedience to God the Father. He's going to live a perfect life, and he's going to pay the price for every sin since Adam and Eve first fell in the garden. And through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he is going to defeat the power of sin and death as he dies on the cross, is buried in the grave, and is raised to life three days later. In the Garden of Eden, Satan, Satan came and he tempted Adam and Eve, right? He tempted them, and they fell. They fell. They did not resist the temptation that Satan brought. They fell, and sin entered the world, and every single one of us is infected by it. We've all sinned, right? We've all done things that go contrary to what God calls us to live. Calls us how to, we've done things that are contrary to how God calls us to live. That's, that's what sin is. But God so loved the world, he sent his only son to pay the price for our sins and to bring us back into a right relationship with God the Father. And next week, we're going to read a story that follows this, uh, this genealogy. The very next story 
Jesus is going to be led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where Satan is going to come and he's going to tempt Jesus. And, and here's what we're going to discover. Satan has not changed his, his attack for, for as long as human history has existed. He's been trying to do the same tricks. The difference is you and me and Adam and Eve and every single human being except for one falls for his tricks. We fall. We sinned. We don't resist him the way we should. But Jesus is going to resist him perfectly. And next week, we're going to take a look at how Jesus resisted Satan in the wilderness. And hopefully, get some, uh, some teaching from Jesus on how we can have success resisting Satan in the future. Amen? Amen. That's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. And we thank you, thank you, thank you for your son, Jesus. God, thank you that on the day that he stepped into the waters there of the River Jordan, next to John the Baptist, we thank you, God, that you confirmed that this is your son, that the skies were opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and your voice confirmed from heaven that this is the son of God, the one who is coming to make peace between sinful man and you. And God, we pray. We pray that every person in this room has experienced the forgiveness that's available to them through Jesus. And if they haven't, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would turn to you, ask you to forgive them of their sins, that they would, they would confess that they do, they do believe that you sent your son, that he died for them, that they believe that he was raised from the dead, and because of him, they can have newness of life. I pray that they would cry out to you today. And God, I pray if there's somebody here who doesn't know that, or maybe they still have questions, I pray that today would be a day where they would take a bold step and be courageous even and, and come and talk to me or Pastor Henry, Pastor Jeff. Talk to somebody else here and ask the questions that they need to ask so they can experience the forgiveness that's available through Jesus. And God, I pray that as we leave this place that we would leave as changed people. God, help us to continue to grow more and more of our knowledge of you and to help us to live more and more like you. We look forward to next week, Lord, where we take a look at how your son was victorious over Satan. Pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.